Caster Jane Show Talk Radio for Fine Minds airs Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern, and is always available for your listening pleasure at HallieCasterJane.com. Thanks so much for being here. I am Hallie Caster Jane. This evening on the Hallie Caster Jane Show, joining me at my table is Emmy-nominated and Golden Globe-nominated film and television actress Victoria Tennant, here to talk about her new book, Irana Baranova and the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, her story of prima ballerina Irana Baranova, who happened to have been her mom. By the way, Victoria will be joining me at the Miami Book Fair International, November 16th through 23rd, at Miami-Dade College in downtown Miami. But before we begin, a brief message from our sponsors. You are listening to The Hallie Caster Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds. The Hallie Caster Jane Show is always available online at HallieCasterJane.com and a host of menus, including blog talk radio. But be sure to visit us at our newest home on iHeartRadio. This evening, The Hallie Caster Jane Show is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With over 150,000 titles in virtually every genre, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audibletrial.com forward slash The Hallie Caster Jane Show. This is Hallie Caster Jane, host of the Hallie Caster Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds. Join me November 16th through 23rd at the nation's largest book fair, the 31st Miami Book Fair International in warm and sunny Miami at Miami-Dade College. Mingle with 400-plus authors from around the world, including Patricia Cornwell, Dave Barry, John Dean, Philip Margolin, Anne Rice, Elizabeth Nunez, and Joanna Rakoff. Listen to the authors read their own words, answer your questions, and autograph your books. For more information, visit MiamiBookFair.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. See you there. Hello, I'm Hallie Kasser-Jane, host of the Hallie Kasser-Jane Show. Join me Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern when I talk with the great artists, writers, musicians, politicians, and celebrities of our day. The Hallie Kasser-Jane Show is talk radio for fine minds. Tune in live or listen to the podcast at HallieKasserJane.com. Victoria Tennant is an Emmy-nominated and Golden Globe-nominated film and television actress. Best known for her role in the iconic TV miniseries The Winds of War and War and Remembrance, in which she appeared as actor Robert Mitchum's on-screen love interest, Tennant also starred with her former husband Steve Martin in two of his films, All of Me and L.A. Story. Now she comes to us as the author of a new coffee table book, Irana Baranova and the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, which chronicles the life and times of her famous ballerina mom, Irana Baranova. In the 1930s and 40s, the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo toured the United States and the world, introducing many to ballet as an art form while spreading the enduring image of the ballerina as an embodiment of feminine grace and sophistication. 
Baranova was one of its most glamorous stars, who would also dance with the Ballet Theater, later to become known as the American Ballet Theater. Warmly recounting her mother's dramatic life story, Tennant shares the family's colorful history, which begins in pre-revolution Russia, recounts the family's flight to Romania, and takes us to Paris, where at the age of 13, Baranova was chosen by the legendary Georges Balanchine to join the Ballet Russe. Filled with more than 330 spectacular photographs, a mix of archival images and family snapshots, Tennant has put together a rare behind-the-scene glimpse of the world of ballet, featuring one of its most gifted talents. So your mom was a force to be reckoned with for sure. What a talent. What a life. What was it like for you growing up the daughter of this tour de force? Uh, To some that might have been intimidating. What? Well, she sure wasn't like anyone else's mom. (laughs) (laughs) She was a Russian ballerina in the English countryside. Um, And uh, I don't know, she... The great thing about mum was her sense of fun. She was in some ways always um, a, a child in that she had this uh, endless capacity for delight. And she was not afraid to be silly. She communicated wonderfully with very young people. Um, she was a really fun mum to have. One of my, you know, funny, I just flashed on it. One of my treasured memories of her is when she would go out to dinner with my dad or to the theater. And we were little. My sister and I shared a room and my brother was down the hallway. And we'd be lying in the dark just before going to sleep. And I'd hear the swish of her silk skirts. Swish, swish, swish as she came into the room and the smell of her perfume as she bent over to kiss us goodnight before going out to dinner. And just that smell of her perfume uh, in the dark. I don't know. It's just a memory that I just flashed on. Wow, that's a gorgeous one and something to hold on to, right? Yeah, I, what, right. what I love so much about this book, and I'm going to say the name of the book again, Irina Baranova and the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, is its intimacy. Had a scholar of the ballet put this together, it would never have been what you did, Victoria. Honestly, the the love you had for your mom, the respect and admiration, it's so throughout this whole project. And I found myself somewhat startled because you and I talked off air. I kind of grew up in that kind of Hollywood mm. thing. Mm. Showbiz family is not always so loving, but your mom was a, a great star, but so she was also a great mom? Yes, she was. And... Um, she gave up performing to be a mum, uh, and, you know, like she did everything, she gave it 120%. <laughs> 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 and, uh, I wanted, I wanted the, the book to be about her and her life story, and I thought her story is so interesting and so extraordinary and unusual. It just happens to be about a ballerina, but the story should appeal on a human level to people who aren't interested in ballet at all, or who perhaps never thought they might be or would be, because it's just a cracking good story. So I tried to tell it in a way that it was, it was human. Um, and the ballet stuff, you know, comes into it, but it doesn't overly uh, dominate the humanity of the story. And I think there's enough, you know, ballet history or details about ballets and the people who made them and the artists involved in them that people who really do know and appreciate ballet would get 
interesting information and be fascinated by that. But for someone who was just interested in a woman who had an amazing life, the story and the photographs would would be enough. No question about it. And let's get to that story a little bit. Let's talk about the family history. It's funny, I'm sitting here looking at my grandfather and great-grandfather in his Russian army uniform, which is in my office. So I share that with you. Come from a Russian background. She was born in Russia. Tell us about her parents a little bit, specifically her mom, and, and the family eventually fleeing to Romania, and we'll take it off from there. Well, the family was... Um they were not the high aristocracy. They weren't, you know, dukes and duchesses, but they were upper class and their jobs and lives were very bound in with the imperial family, the Tsar and the, uh, and the family. My grandfather's father was the director of the imperial bank and my grandmother's father was a general in the imperial guard. So very associated with the royal family and thus in great jeopardy when the royal family was first removed from a a ruling position and then when they were all shot in a basement. Very, very dangerous association to have. And then ballet was also highly associated with the royal family because they were great patrons of the art, the Tsar personally, out of his personal um, uh, income, paid for not just two ballet companies and the salaries of everyone in the ballet companies, but also the training ballet academy that taught the young dancers how to dance. And also the Tsars and the Archdukes, the brothers of the Tsars and the uncles and whatever, seemed to make a habit of picking their early girlfriends before they had, you know, the arranged marriages that the aristocracy always had. But their early girlfriends would generally be um, from the ranks of the ballerinas in the ballet company. So the whole art form was very associated with the royal family and... Then when the royal family were removed and then murdered, um, you know, most of the dancers really ended up in Paris, all the white Russians, the dancing refugees, uh, which was, of course, wonderful for the art form in the West because Fokine and Balanchine and all, all the Russians that you've ever heard of fled out of Russia because it was a very dangerous job to have. And off they went to Romania. Your grandmother had always been in love with the ballet and wanted to be a ballerina herself and set your mother off and luckily discovered that your mom was quite talented, very, very young, right? That's right. Yes, Granny had been taken to the ballet by her parents. And when she expressed how much she loved it and how much she would like to have dancing lessons, they were horrified. They were shocked because... Again, it was one thing to be a patron of the arts, and it was socially unacceptable for girls or boys of good family to actually go into the arts, particularly because of the ballerinas who were the girlfriends of the <laughs> high aristocracy, you know, particularly for a girl, that would have been um, very, very socially frowned on. So that dream was not going to be hers, but when they had to flee for their lives across the border into Romania where they arrived as illegal immigrants in the clothes they stood up in. Eventually, she sent my mother to have ballet lessons to live her dream because there was no society anymore. It didn't matter what you did. Uh, there were no social restrictions on girls and ballet. So off my mother was sent um, and she wasn't interested at all 
She didn't know what ballet was. She'd never seen a ballet. She'd never heard ballet music. Um, they were so poor, she didn't have toys. She drew in the earth with a stick. Her idea of fun was to run around with the other kids in the courtyard behind the factories. And they had slingshots and, you know, sling pebbles at each other. So clinging on to a kitchen table in someone else's tenement flat apartment while the teacher and my grandmother hummed music because there was no music or piano. She didn't know what she was doing. She thought it was all stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and granny, you know, granny said to uh, grandpa, look, this isn't going to work unless she sees a ballet because she has no clue what she's doing. And so um, somehow they saved the money for granny and, and my mother to go and see a ballet that the great Kasavina was performing in Bucharest. So that involved train tickets, probably third-class train tickets, as well as the tickets for the ballet. And when my mother saw it, it was a life-changing experience. She couldn't believe that this was what she was doing, holding on to the edge of a kitchen table. You know, that, that really? ballet. Yeah. And after that, she had this image in her head of what she was supposed to be doing and the teacher then said oh my god this this child has something she has a real talent and she said this amazing thing to my grandmother she said you can't leave her with me i will ruin her i'm not a good enough teacher for a child like this you have to take her to a great teacher in paris and that's what happened off she goes to paris i mean it sounds very glamorous but can you imagine my poor grandfather in there tenement apartment behind the factory where they're hungry all the time because they don't have enough money for food. And his wife comes home and says, oh, we've got to go to Paris. And Find the money. For, he had to work for over a year to save the money to buy three train tickets from Romania to Paris. Um, and then when, when they got there, uh, they were, you know, again, another incredible teacher who they took a they took my mother to see this wonderful teacher, Madame Prebrzezinska, and she saw my mother dance, and she said, I'll take her, and I know you have no money. I know you can't pay me, and I will still take her. So the generosity of these two women, you know, who gave my mother a chance in life. To me, that's such a wonderful part of this story. Uh, let's jump ahead a little bit just for the sake of time and, and talk about George Balanchine and, and the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo and how all of that came to be. Well, so my mother was taking class with um, Madame Probozhenska in Paris, and she was 12 years old, and two men showed up in the studio one day, and one was Colonel de Basile, who was a white Russian cavalry officer um, whose reinvention of himself as a refugee in Paris <laughs> was he was going to um, start another ballet company like the Diaghilev Ballet Company. He partnered with Rene Blum, who ran the Monte Carlo Opera House, and said, if you can get me the theater space, I will hire the dancers and find a patron. And they agreed that George Balanchine would be the ballet master and the choreographer for their first year. And Balanchine had been a great dancer in the old Diaghilev Ballet Company, but he was a baby choreographer now. He was starting to choreograph and, and make a reputation for himself as a choreographer. So Balanchine agreed to take the job right. being the ballet master and the choreographer for the new company, but he said he did not want to recreate the old-fashioned big Russian ballets. He wanted modern, he wanted light and speed and youth, and he wanted to hire very young dancers. So they hired a basis of the ballet company from the existing dancers in Paris, but he went around 
three ballet studios looking for very young girls. And he chose these three girls, one of whom was my mother. And when they went to my grandparents uh, to say, well, we would like to offer her a job with a new company, they said, but it's impossible. She's 12. <laughs> She's still in school. She can't go and, and be a dancer in a ballet company. And somehow de Basile talked them into it. So she left school at the age of 12. That was the end of her formal education. And um, Grandpa was left behind working in a factory in Paris, and Granny was the chaperone, and took my mother down to Monte Carlo. And she started work, I mean, at the age of 12, with the other adult ballet dancers and two other young girls, Tamara Tumanova and Tatiana Ryabushinska. And Balanchine was making new ballets. And, you know, he had seen what these girls could do in the studios, and so he devised what was quite an acrobatic feat at the, at the time. No one had ever seen anything like this in the ballet. He had the three young girls on the stage doing 32 turns. It's a fouette where your leg shoots out and whips you around, and you whip yourself around and around and around with one leg going out and coming in. And, I mean, normally you do one or two. You know, maybe men do three or four sometimes. But he had them do 32 and this created a sensation. No one had seen anything like it before. When the company came to America on their first tour in 1933, the great American impresario Sol Hurok dreamt up the name The Three Baby Ballerinas, and it became a sort of, you know, big press thing, The Baby Ballerinas, and it stuck with them their whole lives. When they were 80, they were The Baby Ballerinas. <laughs> <laughs> she had she had a quite a, a beautiful face, and even in her later years, she mm. still looked so gorgeous and so young uh, with that face, which you uh, have some of her characteristics, might I say. I got a digression. Did you ever want to do ballet? Was it ever in well, the cards, or just or not? Uh, I went to a ballet school. It was a boarding school for budding ballerinas. And my sister and I were day girls in the boarding school, which was social death. Uh, and we did ballet every day, five days a week. We did, you know, two hours of ballet instead of doing any sports. And it was not easy being Baranova's daughter, you know. Oh, like I can't imagine. You were Picasso's child and you wanted to be a painter. Um, it was a heavy, a heavy lift, I can tell you. And I think I disappointed everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You made up for it in your uh, acting career later. So, <laughs> so that was a good thing. You know, we all find our way in life, but it's not always what people think it should be. Another thing is this, I can't even imagine, and I'm sure even you being the daughter of and hearing the stories, this phenomenal thing that happened to this girl to this 12-year-old girl. And there was a part in the book that just got to me. Was, I don't remember where it was, but it was Irina, the, the woman on stage, and Irina, the girl off stage, a child mm. under the absolute control of so many. Mm. That, well, growing yes, up I mean, with you that. Could see, you could see that because rehearsing with the company, performing with the company, and not just performing in the back row of the chorus, but performing as a leading ballerina. She was treated as an adult in a company of adults, and not just as an equal, but she was a star. So on stage and with the company, she had a position amongst other adults that was treated with respect and which was very high achieving, 
And then when she was not on the stage or in her dressing room, she was a little girl with her hair in braids and, and knee socks under the absolute authority of her mother. And so this, you know, dual identity that went through her whole life where she was a great artist among artists, an adult, and then she was this little girl, quite often a naughty little girl with her mother. And, you know, Granny lived with her. Um, Granny lived with my mom until she died at the age of 93 when my mother was 73. So for um, the first 73 years of her life, (laughs) she was always a child for someone else who was the grown-up. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that just absolutely extraordinary? And I'm I'm curious as to, as you looked at all of this, putting this project together and reading all of her letters and and whatever you had of hers, what you thought she felt truly in her heart about all of this? Was she, on the one hand, grateful, on the other hand, wishing I wish I had had a regular childhood? Uh, What what were her thoughts? Oh, no, no, no. I don't think so at all. I think she was over the moon and grateful for the life she was given because when she left school and joined the company, she was doing what she loved more than anything else in the world and she was doing it at a very high level. And she did that, you know, every day of her life for the next, you know, I don't know, 12, 15, 20 years. Um, No longer than that. I mean, she had Stravinsky playing the piano in rehearsals to explain the new avant-garde music rhythms to the young dancers. She had Miro and Dali and Picasso and Derain and Dufy doing the costumes and the decor. Uh, she worked with these extraordinary choreographers, Balanchine and Miasin, Nijinska and Fokin. I mean, giants, genius giants of the art form. And She created so many wonderful roles and she partnered so many extraordinary other dancers. I think her life was, I mean, privileged as an artist beyond compare. And the sacrifices that she made, she made willingly. And that is not to belittle the sacrifices. The sacrifices were huge. But I don't think she would have exchanged the childhood or the career she had for anything else in the world, because she always thought how lucky you are to be able to do something you love so passionately. Not everyone in the world is lucky enough to have a job they love passionately. No question about that. But I also think that that says a great deal about her, because there were a lot of people who had similar advantages as children and didn't understand what they had and then went on to destroy their lives. We all know those stories right. over and she, over. Yes. So she no, was yeah, a, she, I, I see. you yes. see what I'm saying? She was a well-grounded person. There is well, no question, more or less, because the next thing is at 17, she elopes. <laughs> I that's get, right. Yeah. With, with, however, another huge authority figure. She didn't run off with, you know, a rock and roller. She ran off with the director of the company. <laughs> you know, who's, who's smart girl <laughs> who only had her best interests as a professional ballerina. So, you know, she really exchanged one authority figure, her mother and father, for another one, her husband. And by that time, you know, she was 16. She was already a huge star. She was a prima ballerina and ballets were being made for her. She was already huge. Um, and she did elope during one of the American tours where 
she sneaked out of the theatre in the second half of the programme and by the time the parents caught up with the bride and groom at the next stop, um, they were already married. But the groom was like the director of the company, so... Um, somewhat forgiven, somewhat forgiven. With George well, Balanchine made a, a, a snarky little remark uh, that's in the <laughs> <laughs> that I love. I'm going to quote at the Russian Tea Room. You write that my mother and Jerry bumped into Balanchine. He said that he supposed he should congratulate them on their marriage, but he didn't give it more than a couple of years. Charming. <laughs> uh, well, he he was only half right. It actually lasted about eight years. Um, <laughs> But um, how many marriages did Mr. Balanchine have? <laughs> <laughs> I like your thinking, Victoria. This fair is fair is fair. Should we talk the American Ballet Theater to some degree? It wasn't called the American Ballet Theater. It was called Ballet Theater originally, but it was it was always intended to be um, the first or one of the first great American ballet companies, and. It later added the word American, so it became American Ballet Theatre. But Ballet Theatre, um, as a as a concept, was supposed to be the first truly important, great, all-American company. And they found that they couldn't make a financial go of this company without some Russians, because the American ballet audience wasn't prepared to buy tickets for dancers they'd never heard of. And the only dancers that anyone had ever heard of at that point all had Russian names. Uh, so they would turn out in their thousands to see Irina Baranova, but they weren't prepared to turn out at all to see an American dancer they hadn't heard of. So after a, a start with American dancers that, that failed, they then brought in a couple of very famous ballerinas, my mother and Alicia Markova, and together with Anton Dolin as the leading male dancer, the company for the next two or three years was really led by the Russians, after which the other members of the company who were American became sufficiently well-known enough in the new ballets and as dancers in their own right that they could then carry an all-American ballet company forward with all-American dancers. But initially, what put the company firmly on the map was my mother and Alicia Markova and Anton Dolin. Phenomenal. Think about it. Oh, it's just amazing. She saw the world. God knows she was the most admired ever. So brilliant at what she did. And she gave it all up to marry your dad, Cecil mm -hmm. Tennant, which I'm sure you're happy of because we can. I'm happy of. I'm sitting here talking to you. Um, <laughs> talk to me about that. To, she really did give it all up for him. It was a condition of the marriage proposal. He wanted a wife and kids and a home to come home to. And um, the life of a ballerina is not very user-friendly for a mum with young kids. Um, and I think maybe because she had started at the age of 12, that by the time she was 30, she'd had a pretty good career. And, you know, nowadays, I think with... The more modern dance companies there are, you can see the feasibility of being an older dancer and still having a rich and full performing career. But particularly then, you know, in the 1940s, if you hit 30, you were looking at a pretty thin performing future for yourself. And she had had a good long run since she was 12 and she thought, you know, it's going to be downhill from here on. 
uh, and I'm being offered the chance of this other life, the life that I haven't had before, a real home for the first time in my life, a real home and a real family. And she took it. Your father was tragically killed. How was she? How did she take that? Oh, it it was devastating. It was It was the end, really. The end of the family, the end of the home. Uh, it was an inexplicable car accident that happened almost outside the gates of our house. <laughs> and, I mean, in that one moment, my father was killed. My brother and sister were very badly hurt. Um, the, I mean, the head of the family who ran the whole show was removed in an instant. Uh, and my mother was not prepared for that in any way whatsoever. We were completely lost. Um, she didn't know who to call, um, how to find out, you know, how to deal with, the, you know, even our finances or what we had or if we had anything at all or, um, you know, and she was devastated. She was completely emotionally devastated. Um, so it was a terrible, terrible time. Uh, and, you know, with my brother and sister hurt too, and my brother was very seriously hurt um, in the hospital and, I mean, really in bed without moving for a couple of months oh, after wow. that. Yeah. I mean, it just could not have been uh, more destructive and awful. And there were no support systems then. There was no, you know, grief counseling or social workers or, you know, this is England in the, you know, the 1960s. It, it, there was nothing. There was no help whatsoever. And um, it, it, it was terrible. I mean, within a year and a half, my mother had sold the house to pay the death duties and we didn't have a home anymore and we really didn't have much of a family either. For years, my brother, sister and I and my mother were all, we were scattered in different countries, different continents, seeing each other quite rarely and infrequently. Uh, it was the end of the family as we knew it. Hmm. So sad, but, but she did pick herself up and move on, right? She went to live in Switzerland, um, for 15 years and then she went back to London and you know after a period where she really dropped out of sight completely she then came back and she worked a lot for the Royal Academy of Dance she was a vice president of the RAD and she traveled all over the world and um, giving class and master class and um, doing ballets with professional ballet companies that wanted to have the choreography um, refreshed and, and, and maintained um, and the choreographers that she had worked with that had made the ballets on her, she was able to go out and, and you know, repair some of the, uh, the ballets that were being done by um, current ballet companies. Uh, she had a very, yes, she, she regained a life. Um, it, she never regained a family life, but she regained a professional life. And and it's interesting to me, dance at the end uh, was was to some degree again a savior for her. She spent her last years in Australia. She wrote her autobiography. She never got to read it. You had to read it to her because her sight was, was impaired at that point. And she wound up with her first husband until he passed, right? Mm -hmm. And she did return 
to Russia. Here's my question, I guess. In that extraordinary life, the public and the private, which do you think meant the most of her, her art or her family? What meant the most to her art or her family? I mean, that's a Sophie's choice. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, she gave up her art for her family, so I think she put her children first. But her art really defined her life and defined who she was as a person. And um, her life experience uh, was all formed by her art. So I don't, I don't really think that you could disassociate the two, even though she had given it up and even though she was our mum, she was still a ballerina. Yeah. Uh, and she was a ballerina a thousand percent. So um, even, even if she was with the family, she was still this extraordinary artist who thought the way an artist thinks and had the creativity and the imagination that an artist has, um, totally informed. I think all of this is so fascinating because look at you. I can't have you here and not talk to you about you just for a moment. Hmm. Um, you're the daughter of a prima ballerina. Your godfather was Sir Laurence Olivier. You've met people many only dream about. And you've had your own extraordinary career. Plus, you were married to one of America's icons at one point, Steve Martin. You have a couple of kids now, and you're seemingly happy. And listen to me, and you got to kiss Robert Mitchum. <laughs> <laughs> I got to steam his glasses up. <laughs> I got to ask you about that, my friend. What was it like to kiss Robert Mitchum? <laughs> yeah, Robert and I were really good friends. He was wonderful to me. He truly was wonderful because I was, you know, this sort of little, completely unknown actress, and he was this massive star. And we worked together for, you know, a couple of years between the Winds of War and War and Remembrance, and he was just so generous and wonderful to me. Um, he really handed it to me on a plate, and it was a great experience and a great learning experience for me working with him. And he sort of adopted me into the family. Um, he introduced me to his daughter, who was the same age as me, and were great friends, have been ever since. And um, his wife, Dorothy, sort of, they folded me in. You know, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Nothing. I was in a hotel. Oh, you're going to have Thanksgiving with us. What are you doing for Christmas? I mean, they could not have been kinder to me. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was... He was just so interesting. He had so many stories, and he'd worked with everyone you'd ever heard of. I mean, to sit in the deck chair next to him in between, you know, shots, waiting to be called to work, and 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 listening to him talk about, you know, John Wayne and Ava Gardner and Marilyn Monroe and Rosalind Russell. I mean, it was just amazing. How old were you at the time that was filming the first uh, to first with the Winds of War? Uh, 33, I think. And you look like you were 23. And absolutely. Can I tell you something? I just watched the whole thing all over again. Oh. You were so brilliant in that you gave a flawless, flawless performance and you were stunning to boot. Honest to God, I wish that series would bring, come back to TV because it's, it's, it's iconic. It's pretty amazing. I don't think that anything that epic will ever be made again for television. I mean, no one would spend that kind of money. And the other thing is, I realized pretty recently, it's probably the last big work on film that was done without computer-generated special effects. Really? 
Everything right. you see there is real. You know, the, when they recreated the bombing of Pearl Harbor, those are real battleships and real planes and real sailors jumping into the water. Um, you know, there were real tanks and real submarines. Now you wouldn't do that. You'd just create it in the computer. That was the last time it was, it was done like that. And it was pretty amazing to watch them do it too. I, I used to go and watch the big scenes being filmed, even if I wasn't in them, just because it was an extraordinary sight. You probably could not do that because I don't think that anybody would allow on TV some of the true footage that was there. Everything about that production was class A. Amazing, amazing. What's your one memory that you take away the most from that? Hmm. Well, um... (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) What was pretty funny, we filmed a lot in what was then Yugoslavia um, in the winter, you know, January and February, and lots of snow around and that. And for filming the interior scenes um, where Yugoslavia was standing in for Russia, the Russian front, um, scenes in Vienna or um, outside scenes uh, in other countries. It was all done there. But inside some of the buildings that we filmed in, palaces or sort of grand buildings, they weren't heated. So sometimes it was much colder filming indoors than it was outdoors (laughs) because when you were outdoors, you got to wear a fur coat and indoors you were in just a thin dress and it was completely unheated and it was as cold inside. And, I mean, I can remember touching knives and forks and plates and glasses, and they were icy to the touch. Everything was freezing. You know, your breath was was smoking inside uh, because it was so cold, and we would have to chew ice cubes just before a close-up to try and make our breath cold when we spoke so that it wouldn't smoke on camera. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Unbelievable. How did you get that role, by the way? I never knew. Oh, auditioning. Auditioning. Seriously? Yeah, it was grueling. I, I, um, I met the director, producer, Dan Curtis, and um, other, uh, other associate producers at a hotel in London and, and read for them with a, you know, in a casting session. And then, then Dan said, well, would you like to stay for dinner? And I thought, oh, gosh, maybe this is going well. Um, so I said, yes, please. And so I had dinner with them. And then they all disappeared. And then two months later, they all came back again. And I had to put on a army uniform and hair and makeup and do a film test for them. And then they all went away again. Oh, my God. And, you know, and then it was like another two or three months. And I got the call saying, can you get on a plane on Thursday? Well, you know, you've got the job. You start work next week. And meanwhile, can you go to the costume house and get your costume? And because it was now at such short notice, um, I couldn't work with a costume designer. So luckily, I, I had done all my homework knowing when the job was starting and thinking, even though they don't seem to have made their mind up yet, if I don't do my homework now, I won't be ready for it if they actually offer wow. the job. So I went to the great costume house in London at the time, Berman's End. I had all the scene breakdowns. I mean, months and months worth of filming breakdown of the scenes and the lists of what was required for every scene, you know, shoes and hats and jackets and sweaters and long dresses and short dresses and what have you. And we did the whole thing. Um, the in-house, you know, wardrobe mistresses and myself. 
And then these hampers of costumes were sent to Los Angeles with me on the plane, and, and I took them all down to Paramount Studios um, the first week when I arrived in Los Angeles before starting work to show all the costumes to Dan Curtis, the director, and the production designer, and everyone else. And I, you know, I had the luxury because there was no one supervising me of picking whatever I thought was right for my character. So I do a parade of these clothes for them, and there's a silence. And Dan Curtis says to me, "Gee, Victoria, they're awful dowdy." <laughs> and I, I think they, you know, they were expecting something a little more vavavoomy. And I said, "Well, yeah, you see, that's that's how I see her. She's this quiet little English mouse, and she kind of grows on you, and she kind of grows on Robert Mitchum. But it, you know, you don't really notice her at the beginning. And there was, you know, I don't think they were thrilled, but." Um, there was nothing to be done. It was too late. <laughs> it was perfect. I was thinking about it when I was watching one of the scenes um, after you're married and, and Byron comes meets you mm. at the airport where you're picking him up at the airport and the both mm. of you are dressed and it, it struck my mind because you're you were both wearing beige he in his you know military mm. uniform and you were wearing a beige dress and you also had a hat on your head that looked like a cadet's hat mm. and I, I just it, it and you had these crazy white glasses on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought she has this so down pat. <laughs> I mean, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal job oh, on your part. Job. Yeah, I'll yeah. bet you did. I'll bet you did. I'll bet you were scared to death the first couple of days you went and had to work with all these uh, big old people. Oh, the first day, nightmare, nightmare. <laughs> I caught this awful flu bug on the plane what? on the way to Los Angeles. So like 24 hours after landing, I was sick as a dog. I had this horrible flu. And, you know, the alarm went off at five in the morning to get up and go to work. And I could hardly get out of bed. I am not exaggerating. I crawled on my hands and knees to the little fridge in my hotel room. And I thought if I could just get myself to drink something, I feel, I mean, I felt so sick. And I poured myself into the car that showed up at, you know, quarter to six. (laughs) And... They drove me all the way down to Long Beach where we were going to film on the Queen Mary um, for the first week of filming. And, I mean, I must have looked like death warmed up. And I poured myself out of the car and I thought if I could just have, you know, a cup of tea and a piece of toast, I might feel better. And they said, right, come along and meet Mr. Mitchum. And I thought, oh, my God, can't <laughs> I go into makeup first? You no, hadn't no, met no him before? That. Just come and sit. And I, oh. Houston, there'd be some rehearsal, none of it. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Not only are we not going to rehearse, but we're not even going to meet. <laughs> I mean, and we've got 14 months of filming coming up. I mean, suppose he doesn't like me. And I called the director-producer, Dan Curtis, and I said, look, um, would it be too much to ask if I could meet Mr. Mitchum? Oh, well, I don't think there's time for that. I said, well... Um, maybe you could give me his phone number and then I could call him and see if there was time for a cup of tea. No, well, I don't think I could give you his number. So I had never met him before. Oh, my word. That morning when I was, you know, sick as a dog and before I even went into makeup, I was introduced to Mr. Mitchum and there was this iconic guy, this famous (laughs) face. (laughs) I can't uh, even imagine what that was like. And I said to Mr. Mitchum... I know we've had no rehearsal, and I have to tell you, I'm absolutely terrified of you. Um, but I want to say that this is a very, very important job for me. It's my first really big American job, and I think we need to rehearse. 
So um, all our free moments, and maybe at the weekends, you know, can we rehearse, please? Because, you know, I don't know how you feel about your scenes with everyone else, but with your scenes with me, they're important and I want to rehearse. And he looked at me and he said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. I don't know, maybe I amused him or something. But we did. We rehearsed the hell out of our scenes. And then um, at a certain point, Dan Curtis heard about this and he said, listen, I hear that you're rehearsing at the weekends. I think I should be there. I said, well, okay. So, you know, we were on location in Yugoslavia and we would meet at the, you know, hotel ballroom or something. And then soon it wasn't just Dan Curtis was there, but the cameraman was there and the production designer was there and the continuity lady was there. And suddenly it was like a lot of the crew was there and we were rehearsing. And then Dan would say, well, you know, we got a lot of pages to do on Monday. Maybe we should go out to the location. So then we all <laughs> would go to the location and we'd rehearse the scene. But I tell you, when we came to shoot the scenes, we got through... Uh, an unbelievable amount of pages every day because we'd worked out what we were going to do. Right, yeah, that helps a lot. Did you get to meet Herman Wook? Was he, how, how, yes, 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 in fact, um, Mr. Wook showed up a few times and actually plays, I think, an archbishop. Oh, really? I didn't notice that. Yes, they put him in costume. I have to go <laughs> Every, look now. Everyone got put in a costume <laughs> in one scene or another. He got to be an archbishop. He's like 107 or some crazy thing. He's still alive. God bless him. One remaining question. So you begin your wonderful book, telling, going through your mom's mementos, over 2,000 photographs, piles of letters, crumbling press clippings and posters, and then you discover this small silk bag with a frayed zipper that you carefully pried open. And in it, you found a small pair of pale pink toe shoes. I just love that. And inscribed in the lining in your mother's handwriting were her name and my last performance. Her legacy to the world for certain, I think we all can kind of get that. I was wondering what you think her legacy is to you. Well, she always said to the kids that it was up to us what we wanted to be in our lives. But whatever we chose to be, we could be a trash collector, but just be the best trash collector out there. It was hard work, um, real work ethic, and the idea that you could give 120% to something you absolutely loved. So we had that, um, the idea that you could spend your life doing something you loved, and that if you did, you were going to give it your all. Um, And also, you know, she... She gave me the role model of this wonderful mother to whom nothing was more important than her children. Um, and um, I just thought, you know, a few years ago, my daughter, when she was you know, in lower school, said to me, Mom, do you love acting? And I said, yes, yes, I do. I mean, I've done it all my life. And she said, well, you don't do it so much now. And I said, well, no, that's because I love you more. And I think that's what I felt with my mom, is that she loved us absolutely. Well, kiddo, you're a chip off the old block, aren't you? (laughs) I've been speaking with actress and author Victoria Tennant, whose new coffee table book, Irana Baranova and the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, is simply gorgeous. For more information, visit the University of Chicago Press dot E-D-U.
Before I go, I want to remind everyone that podcasts of current and past shows are always available to listen to free on iTunes under The Helicaster Jane Show. The Helicaster Jane Show was also available for download via Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and a host of other venues. Google The Helicaster Jane Show, and you will find us. Of course, podcasts of our shows, both past and present, are always posted for your listening pleasure at HelicasterJane.com which I hope you'll visit often for the latest information on our upcoming segments. Oh, and while you're at HallieCasterJane.com, don't forget to visit my blog to read my latest musings. I'll be back next week, same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for another edition of the Hallie Jane Show, Talk Radio for Fine Minds, brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com forward slash the Hallie Kasser Jane Show. Audible.com features over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Stay in touch, won't you? Remember, that's HallieCasserJane.com. Discover us on Facebook at HallieCasserJane and on Twitter at HallieCJ. I love to hear from you. So, till we meet again, this is Hallie Kasser Jane. It's a wrap. <laughs>